welcome to The Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Good morning. Uh, welcome to The Knowing. I am CL. I'm here with Allison. Good morning, Allison. It looks very sunny where Good you're morning. at. It is. It's cold, though. Sunny oh, really? and cold. Yeah. yeah, you guys are getting winter? Finally. Nice. I mean, Much snow? None. None, none, none. I'm, I'm, I worry that when it doesn't come now, it's going to be like all of a sudden April, there's a snowstorm, which is what's been happening uh-huh. the past few years. So uh-huh. it might still be coming, totally. but it's been easy. Easy yeah. so far. Yeah, it's been in Western Central BC. It has been crazy easy. Like it's been plus temperatures for most of the winter. We're in like a little bit now, but I mean, it is. It's. It sounds like you guys are experiencing something similar, like this weird sort of shift of the seasons. Mm-hmm. You know, like we get winter far later now, and and then like March and April is this crazy season of snow and cold temperatures and stuff. It's. It, I I find it a. I suppose a good thing that we call it global climate change, but you know, I like the term global weirding instead of warming. Mm. Like it's just like everything is shifting in this like strange, unpredictable way. And I mean, I can't imagine being a, an organism, you know, in the ecosystem right now, like birds, you know, like, oh, it's time to lay eggs. And then like, right. no, actually just kidding. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's highly, I'm making a joke, but it's so destructive to the overall functioning of the system so it just happened so fast like I remember really distinctly Mm. four seasons I mean I also grew up in Seattle so they were always very temperate but it was like I really remember spring taking time and fall taking time and here it's like we have long winter long summer and then springs two weeks falls two weeks and I'm like oh it worries me yeah you you can come to Canada and have Six weeks of mud, if you'd like. We have a really nice extended spring. We call it breakup because it's, uh, I mean, the snow is breaking up, the ice is breaking up, but also because of the long winter, you know, many relationships break up because people are like, I'm so sick of you. I need out. It's like your annual COVID lockdown. Totally, totally. We've been we've been doing this for years. We're so used to this. <laughs> it is. It's a long winter, but I the winters here are amazing generally because we get out a lot and do a lot. So yeah, it's pretty pleasant. Yeah, yeah. But things do change. You know, it's an interesting um, for whatever reason. I think Brent and I, my partner, were talking about this, like the the sort of amplification of a change spiral, if that makes sense. You know where say, you know, either if we are spiraling upwards, you know, in say our healing journey where maybe we change our diet and then we do some exercise and we start feeling better. So then we take more stuff on and there's this kind of exponential uh, increase in the spiral that can start to happen, right? There's there's a lot of um, resistance in the upward spiral, right? Where it, it, it takes more energy, more input to make the spiral happen, mm-hmm. but it still starts to, we start to kind of ride this this increasing change process. The same thing goes when we're spiraling downwards, although there's a lot less friction, a lot less resistance on the spiral downwards. Like you're eating poorly, you don't drink water, you don't exercise. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. a more kind of passive and um, almost easy spiral, but in any change process, I think there is, I am no mathematician in the, in the sense of, of being able to 
quantify, you know, change processes, but there is an exponential process that starts to happen, right? And I mean, environmentalist ecologists have been warning us about this since the 1960s and perhaps even earlier that, you know, if you if you set a a process in motion within an ecological system, it will escalate. It will get faster. I mean, James Lovelock, who um, created the Gaia hypothesis back in the 70s, you know, he's like, this is, the earth is a living being. It is a system that if you tip it, you know, and, and imbalance the way that the the sort of delicate interaction of all the systems are are set in, if you do that, it will start to go faster and faster and faster until it will be a, a relatively uncontrolled process, which is rather terrifying, you know, mm-hmm. but we we can also, you know, tip it the other way, hopefully, and maybe are more inclined to do so, but we'll see. You guys have a new president, I hear. <sighs> we do. We do. <laughs> she breathes a sigh of relief. <laughs> I know, that's why it's like, hmm, how are you today? I'm like, you know what? I'm great. I have no totally. complaints. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally fine. It's, you know, uh-huh. and, and I don't expect anybody to be a savior. I know everybody's human, mm-hmm. but there is mm-hmm. just a relief that it's like, okay, there might be just more, I don't want to disparage anybody or, you know, if someone was very interested in Trump. But to me, it just mm-hmm. feels really relieving to have someone approach things from like a more adult, mm-hmm. <laughs> less narcissistic point of view and more people focused. Mm-hmm. And it feels mm-hmm. like we're turning into toward more person focused versus more versus, you know, what benefits one person and their right. small group right. of people. So. I I feel good. I, there feels like possibility again. I think that that's a big part yeah. of the relief is that it's like okay, I don't I don't think anybody's going to do the job perfectly no matter what. But I I do feel like there mm-hmm. are people who are more team players, and I feel like we have that now. Yeah, that's and you and I had an, an interesting conversation. I think about um, about this yesterday and about uh, the concept or the experience of of hope, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, my position on hope is that it can be a very uh, damaging state to be in if it is, um, we were looking at the etymology of the actual, of the word and and the basis of it is to have confidence in the future, you know? And if we are placing too much um I guess I wouldn't call it confidence, but expectation in the future, like, oh, things are going to get better. I think that hope can actually be quite destructive because we're utilizing it to um, move away from the realities of what is in this moment, right? And there is there is hope that is escapist in that sense, you know, and then there can be hope, which what I had offered to you yesterday, this idea that, you know, if we merge a sense of confidence in the future with the first noble truth in Buddhism, which is life is going to be hard. There's going to be sickness and death and suffering. You know, we need to make a kind of cognitive peace with that truth in order to be sane and functional human beings. And I think we can combine those two things, you know, to have confidence in the future of like, okay, there's what, I love that you use the word possibility, right? That That is a beautiful space to be in, you know, which I don't think it it allows us the same escapist experience as as certain forms and, and applications of hope can, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'm I'm just looking so forward to the future, right? Possibility is I'm sitting in this moment and I know that there is the potential for good change to happen. I mean, that was inherently not there with Trump, right? 
Right. There was in, and there was not the sense for, I, I think, people who think in terms of ecological systems and, and larger functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people had a sense that, you know, there was potential or possibility for them on a, on a smaller scale, like you're saying, you know, in their individual life. And for the first time, Allison's face has frozen. And it's just me on the podcast. Oh, no. And she's left the Zoom call. Hold on, friends. We'll be back in just a second. Oh, hey, Allison. We're in a new hi, new hi, Zoom guys. room. <laughs> this is the wonders of being on satellite internet and like trying to do things from home. It's never. Uh, I'm surprised this never happened so. before. I know. I it's actually we usually have really good experience, but yeah, for some reason maybe it's the the moon or the weather, but things are have been weird this week. So. Anyway, I was talking to myself for uh, about three minutes there where your your face was frozen. So, and you were gazing at me so intently, except you weren't blinking, but you were so still. And I was like, wow, she is enraptured with what I'm seeing right now. You're like, I'm in a groove. This is, I'm on fire. Totally, totally. I must be saying something truly incredible. No, actually, you were just frozen. So I can't even remember what we were talking about, but we were talking about hope, I well, suppose. we were talking about hope. Mm-hmm. Well, I did have a question about, because I know mm-hmm. um, you have your qualms with hope. Mm-hmm. And That's a beautiful I'm way of putting it. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm curious what you think the difference between hope and faith is. Mm-hmm. My relationship to both of those words is uh, mm-hmm. nuanced and and not um, it includes my commitment to the first noble truth in the way that I will engage with either of those words, right? Where again, I can have, I mean, I, I much prefer the word faith, quite honestly, because if for me, the f- faith includes a a you know, very, aware cognition that that life is going to suck sometimes you know things are going to go sideways people mm-hmm. are going to suffer i'm going to die all of those things can and are for me inc- be included in the definition of faith and how i apply faith in my life faith is not this you know very um kind of sweet expectation that things are going to go well, you know, and and I think that that can actually really be dangerous. You know, I have faith that I'm going to learn what I'm supposed to learn. Um, I have faith that I will, I don't know, move through this life in, in the way that I think I'm meant to, I suppose, you know, but does that mean that I won't make mistakes or be a, a terrible asshole at times? Certainly no, you know, like I, I can actually have faith be inclusive of that. The type of hope that I am aversive to, and I think, again, can be very damaging to a person's spiritual and and healing process, is the type of hope that says, you know, things are just going to get better, and I'm going to place my um, authority and agency in that hope, in a sense, you know, and and I'm just mm-hmm. going to sit and wait, right? And 
and as we talk about often, right, the spiritual process and the and the practices that it contains, at least from from my experience, are very active. There is no passive part of this. I mean, ironically, we we have to learn how to practice a, a truly passive, receptive surrender state, right? Which also takes energy. It's hard to do it. You know, it's it's not a mm-hmm. you don't just sit there and surrender to the moment, right? We actually have to engage with practices that help us get there. But when people engage with a hope that has this um, very Pollyannish, I experience it as, you know, sort of sensation that like, yeah, everything's going to get better and I don't have to do anything about it or someone else is going to fix my experience for me. I think that that is going to only continue um, the experience of suffering for them, right? And Chagyan mm-hmm. Trempa, the head of Shambhala, he he wrote about this and spoke about, you know, the dangers of being in hope too much because it can be a very comfortable kind of warm space to reside in where we are not actually acknowledging the suffering that is occurring in this moment or the reality that suffering is likely to occur in the future if we don't reframe our relationship to to pain and discomfort and, and loss and stuff, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. It's like the difference between waiting till you win the lottery versus, you know, I'm going to get a job that feels good and supports me. And it's like, you know, both of those might have the same outcome, which is that I feel good and taken care of. And one you're participating in. Yeah. And one you're just like magical thinking, wishing for something to happen. Right. Right. And and the the likelihood... I like the word hope. I I totally do. And and I think it's it's a family name actually. My older sister has it as her middle name and my mom has it as her, her middle name and it's a it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful feeling. But I think that I would discriminate uh, between what I would call a childlike hope and an adult hope. And when we yeah. are in our adult state of being as as a human, we are cognizant of the truths of existence. We are not pretending that they will not happen, right? I mean, we have mm. we have built a relationship and and a, a a constant awareness that you know life is is short, and it's going to include discomfort and and difficulties, you know. But it is only and and especially through that cognition, through that level of awareness, that then we can meet those things when they happen with a quality of equanimity. It's not to suggest that we're going to be excited or happy about, you know, struggle, but we're not going to be meeting it with the, again, sort of what I think of as a a childlike response, uh, which is this is not supposed to be happening, you know, but well, it is happening. You know, why are we amplifying our own suffering by saying this should not be happening when it it actively is, right? And, And so hope that includes that adult awareness that, yeah, you know, things, yeah, they, we can hope that they get better. That is great. But also know that there's the the ever-present reality that there will be struggles still there, right? And and that's a different yeah. framing, a different experience of, of being in hope, I think. It, it makes me think of, um, you said this to me before about cannabis, which is that it's a good sometimes ally. It's mm. not necessarily a consistent ally. And to mm-hmm. me, what it sounds like you're saying is that, Hope is a good sometimes ally. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you do just need a glass of cold water on a hot day and just be like, oh God, this feels good. But you don't need a cold <laughs> glass of water all the time. Well, and <laughs> so that's a beautiful ally. A, a beautiful reflection, Allison, in that, you know, we want uh predictability 
and consistency in the application of medicine, right? If you look at the way that Western medicine works, it, it, that's that's the the gold standard, right? Is can you give it to everybody all the time and have the same effect, right? And that is an absurd way of practicing medicine when you really think about it. Like, hey, can I give mm-hmm. this pill to every single person any time of the year, any time of the day, any time in their life and have the same outcome, right? What that means is that that pill has such a potent biochemical, uh, you know, response in their body that it's overriding the entire body, you know, and and its intelligence, right? And that's, that's a, I think, a, a rather scary thing, right? The nuanced reality of, of real medicine is what is medicine in this moment, at this moment in your life today, mm-hmm. six months from now could be poison for you, right? And right. it is, we need to be in this constant awareness and connection and relationship with who we are in this moment to recognize that, yeah, a cold water, a glass of cold water on a summer day is a beautiful thing and, and you know, refreshing and cooling for your system and healing for your organs, a glass of cold water on a winter day is going to be destructive to you and is going to compromise your digestive capacity and stuff. So we need to be responsive and present to being aware of, of, of what thing, what, where we're at, you know, and, and what is good for us in this moment. And you look at every traditional medicine system, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, you know, it was personalized. It was, it was, uh, responsive to the seasons. It was responsive to the Mm -hmm. age of the person. Right. And now we, we have, we, we want these, you know, very, um, easy in a sense, uh, easy to apply medicines where it's like the the saying of, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's a very convenient form mm-hmm. of medicine to go, oh, you've got a skin disorder? Here, take the steroid cream, right? And it's right. it's so lacking in, in you, you know, the, the personal quality that medicine should contain. Cannabis, as you referenced, you know, she is a master teacher. She's a uh, she's a journey taker, and is said to you know when we are in good relationship with that energy and that spirit as an ally, she will take us to the places that we uh, need to go at that moment, right? <laughs> but there's so much to consider in cannabis. Can we have been selectively breeding cannabis to be stronger and stronger and stronger, you know, until what we have now, the strains that people are, you know, engaging with have so much THC in them. Like that's not the way the plant was designed, right? By spirit and the system. And so you need to take a very, very small amount if you're working with this and recognize that she is assisting you in looking at things that you don't want to look at, right? But if used too much or too frequently or in too high of a dose, um, what that journey taking will, will turn into escapism, right? And then she becomes destructive for people, you know? And that's not that she is inherently a malicious spirit or, or bad in any sense. It's just that the person is using something that is is medicine in, in some way and it's become a poison for them because they're, they're misusing it, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's just about having enough self-awareness, which I think is the tricky part because it comes back to the spiral where it's like you don't necessarily recognize you're on that spiral down until you're like, oh my God, I'm on the ground. Yeah, totally. Yes, absolutely. Stop yourself. Well, I mean, this is, you know, this is a big system level question, I think, in that as we are uh, developing and expanding on our understanding of 
the trauma response, you know, and recognizing that every single human being walking around on the planet right now is is acting from their trauma in some way or another, right? And when we are acting mm-hmm. from our trauma, we are not self-aware. That's That's something that has been very well acknowledged that a traumatized person is not looking at what they're doing, right? They're they're scanning the outer environment for danger and trying to just kind of survive, right? So we need educational systems that have this embedded within them, you know, of really understanding um, behavior, human behavior from a compassionate standpoint, right? Going, mm-hmm. okay, this is, this is a trauma reaction or a trauma response that a kid is exhibiting in a school. And how do we as a system, work together to to re uh, reconceptualize, you know, behavior through that lens, right? And then hopefully people are going to, hopefully, hopefully, um, <laughs> we're going to engage with this hope. We're not just sitting here going, somebody's going to do it, you know? But we hopefully, through the application of those kind of um, new frameworks and, and support systems, uh, a person is going to come out of high school with an awareness of their own trauma patterns, right? That is essential. Mm-hmm. We are not teaching people about their coping strategies. And you just assume that people know their own coping strategies, right? They don't. None of us, until no. until we actually know it, we don't know it. Everybody else around us can go, oh my God, Ciel is doing that. Like, can she just see what she's doing, right? And I can't see it. Of course I can. I'm in it. I'm in survival mm-hmm. mode when I'm in my pattern. So... We need those compassionate systems in place in order to help human beings um, un- unravel generations of inherited trauma. All of us have it. doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are. We all carry ancestral trauma. And so mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, through those kind of structures, a person will then be able to become an adult who is not going to immediately, we, we, we can't immediately undo our trauma responses, you know, but over time, over lifetimes, we can commit to saying, okay, I'm going to know when I'm engaging in a trauma response, I'm going to recognize some signals, is it, you know, a quickening heart rate, um, breath, uh, you know, bodily sensations, right? And then I'll be able to, to catch myself instead of going down on that path, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. It's, um, I mean, it's just... <laughs> it makes it sense. is hard. Like, how do you do it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's you know the question of what is the the God that we are serving as a collective. And I know this sounds like a, a crazy question, you know, but Yuval Harari. I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast, but in his book Sapiens, you know, he talks about the the, the true effectiveness of capitalism. He And he says, you know, this is the best religion that anybody has ever come up with because it's so easy to be a capitalist. All you have to do is buy shit and maybe feel bad yeah. about yourself, right? Those are the two sort of um, doctrines implicit in this this religious structure. And he, he says, you know, this is this is like a religion, right? We bow down to the almighty dollar. We are committed to growth and profit and and you know all of the ideas that dominate in our in our common contemporary culture right now, right? And he says, you know, to be a Christian is really hard. To be a Buddhist is is, is really, really hard. You know, these are, they, they're not passive engagements to be a good Christian, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think there's a lot mm-hmm. of good Christians. I don't think there's a lot of good Buddhists, quite honestly, because, you know, we are, we are human. And then we've got this other system, capitalism, that says, here, just go buy this and feel better about yourself. And don't look at those dark places that are uncomfortable to look at, right? And, mm-hmm. and... 
Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing. Look at every philosopher since the beginning of time, Allison, has been saying, how do we get people to look within, you know, and, and actually free themselves by looking at their own behaviors? And I mean, I think that that's the essence of of Christian thought is, you know, the, what does Jesus say? Something about the the kingdom of heaven is within you, you know, and mm-hmm. and the idea that like, that's when we experience true happiness and and a sense of salvation is when we relate honestly to ourselves, right? Same with Buddha. It's, it's mm-hmm. about looking at who you are, but it is a very difficult thing. And especially if we're carrying those traumatic inherited patterns, right? That say, don't look within, you know, look at other people, blame other people and, and figure out what they're doing and how they're making you unsafe, right? Yeah. I, I think that it's, I hear what you're saying, and I think that that is wholly true. And I and one of the things that I've been coming up against lately is that it's like, I feel like I am certainly not perfect at looking at myself, but I feel like because it's a new and hard practice and I've been trying to be better at it, there is a point at which it's just like, God, I feel like I'm always trying to fix myself. And mm-hmm. I... I need joy right now. Mm-hmm. I need lightness. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to be like, you know what? I'm not perfect, but I've been doing a damn good job because mm-hmm. I have showed up this year and looked totally. at all this dark shit that I did not want to look at. But it's Absolutely. kind of like it goes back to what we first talked about where it's like the reward for all this hard work feels like more hard work. And <laughs> that is totally. exhausting. And so sometimes you just want to be like, you know what? Yeah. I don't need to look at this stuff today. I am okay. Yeah. Which is, you know... Or it's like, you know... Uh, sorry to interrupt. What I would suggest... Oh, did you want to say something? Sorry. I, yes, possibly later. Continue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll sorry. Put, put it in my pocket sorry. for now. Yeah, exit. <laughs> sorry about chair. that. I'm like, just make me feel better, CL. That's all I want. <laughs> I don't want to get this uh, stuff. I'm not looking at my shadow anymore. <laughs> no, no. And, and that's such a beautiful point. And something that, you know, uh, on my journey, you know, I, I'm very grateful for my mother coming to me, and I may have mentioned this before, you know, at some point and being like, you are so fucking serious. Like, when did you forget yeah. how to laugh? You know, you're so focused on, you know, fixing this. And and even to use that word, you know, like if we are, we're taking the value system and the way of thinking about medicine from a Western structure, you know, which is like, this is broken. Now we need to fix it. Right. And now we're applying it. We're misapplying it to spiritual practice. It is not a Mm. journey of fixing something that is broken. It is a journey of befriending parts that we have fragmented from right and that's there, mm-hmm. there is love in that and there is you know the the intention to be uh, reconnecting you know rather than digging deeper and deeper and finding shitty parts and going how do I burn this or how do I get rid of it or you know like that's that's old well it's still the contemporary system but like that is that's not what this work is about for you know reasonable sort of very understandable reasons we are applying the value system that we all got raised in to spiritual practice right which is yeah. I'm broken I'm a, I'm a piece of shit I'm a mess you know I need to fix myself right mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, that's that's look at the, the the qualities of patriarchy in there, you know, of like I am being told now again that there is something wrong with me and I need to fix me, right? So yeah. I think that borrowing from the the wisdom of traditional societies and traditional medicine practices that we have to consistently ask, are you dancing? 
Are you laughing? Are you singing? Are you drumming? You know, or drumming, you know, if that applies to you. Are you painting? Are you doing the things that build joy and, and sustain connection in a loving way to you know, the, the, all of you, so that these these parts that are unloved, that's all they are. They're not wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just parts that didn't get love. And so then our, our job is to give them love, not to fix them or sort them out, right? Sometimes in in giving love and attention to those broken parts, we we will see the impact that they have had on the people that we care about or are in relationship with, right? And we make amends for that. But even that does not have to be a, a kind of toxic guilt of like, oh my God, I was a piece of shit. You know, it's it's it can be. I, I, I was a broken person and I caused more brokenness. That's what we do when we're broken. We cause more brokenness. And we can make amends for that and, and learn to forgive and apologize. And, and you know, that that is part of it. And that's, that's a hard part, but that too can be done with love, right? But this reclamation of this healing process out from under patriarchal uh, capitalist, you know, value systems is really essential. And I, when I started doing Zumba, in Berkeley when I was living there. And I was, you know, mm-hmm. like so serious and, and serious about everything. Like I'm a very structured kind of person, right? And and I took spiritual practice the same way. It was especially shadow work was like, oh my God, I'm gonna find all these shit parts of myself and then I'm gonna have to reckon with them and cut them out or do whatever I'm gonna do with them. And then I started mm-hmm. going to Zumba and I'm like, like you're you're very prototypical white person. Like I am definitely not built for dancing in that sense, you know? And like I'm in this room with these like beautiful like Latino and African American people who are like such beautiful dancers and I'm just like flailing about in this space. Red, so red out of embarrassment and 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 shame at not being able to do this, you know? But at some point Allison, like I kept showing up, I'd go two to three times a week. And I kept showing up and I just let go. I I let go of being self-conscious. I let go of thinking that I needed to be different, you know, and I just like flailed all over the place. And and I mean, I love dancing and it, it, Mm -hmm. I I credit that practice with like far more substantial healing and spiritual growth than, you know, the, the intensive, like, I don't know, nailing down of my, my shadow self that I was doing prior to that. Right. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to <laughs> it's, remember it's that hard. we're allowed to be joyful. And I, as crazy yeah. as that seems, you know, like that is the reclamation is, and I, 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 I feel that I, people experience that when they come in contact with, with animals and nature and, and the beauty of nature, right? This system is, is one that does not want us to be okay and joyful in this moment. And I think that that's our greatest calling right now is that, yeah, we see the mess, we see the disaster, we see the chaos, and yeah, there's a lot of pain. And we can hold that and that awareness of it, you know, just like we can hold the awareness that we're not going to be here for very long, right? Life is is very short overall. And that can actually make us love harder and be more present and and be more receptive and cognizant of the joy that's in this moment, right? And that is mm-hmm. incredibly important in spiritual work so that we don't feel like it's just this horrible, horrible slog of, of you know, reaching into dark places in our being and, and cutting out these nasty parts of ourselves, right? Yeah, I it, it's... It's also like not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I think that where I tend to be is that it's just like, um, you know what? 
I've done a lot of hard stuff for what feels like a long time. I want mm-hmm. joy and I'm going to throw the rest mm-hmm. in the trash and mm-hmm. maybe come back to it later, maybe not. <laughs> so it's like, right. you know, how do you, how do you not let go of this willingness to just constantly be accountable, constantly be responsible and also have joy? I feel like that's what I would love to, to figure out how to balance and integrate where it's, it's to just not let the pendulum swing so far to either side to where mm-hmm. I, I only care about joy and I'm totally averse to suffering or mm-hmm. I'm so like, I'm going to look at all my shit and dig it out where it's like, <laughs> I can't see anything. <laughs> I can't see anything beautiful in the world. Like I just miss beauty. Mm-hmm. Totally. And it, I mean, this is a, it's a really tricky question and it's a tricky practice to put into it, to apply in our lives else in that there are going to be times on your spiritual journey where it feels like you're dying. You are, you are mm-hmm. literally, you know, in the depths of some unprocessed, you know, repressed emotional experience that is excruciating, Right. And in those moments, yeah, you don't you don't want joy to get out of it. You need to walk through that fire, right? In order to truly heal and and, and th- what that fire is is the the emotional experience that your past self had when she was 3, 4 years old, whatever that you weren't able to feel and fully integrate. Our responsibility is to feel it now, right? We we have a mm-hmm. responsibility to engage with those unprocessed emotional experiences. And sometimes, yeah, you sit and you're just wrecked by it. I think that we can have faith. Part of the shamanic tradition and perspective is that those moments last no more than 20 minutes. If we let them happen, if we let ourselves go into the intensity of those fires of our emotional experience, it will be no longer than 20 minutes. You can do something for 20 minutes and it's okay, right? Yeah. And and we practice, you know, spiritual warriorship is, is about getting ourselves ready for that, right? And spiritual mm-hmm. warriorship is a daily practice of of you know, ways of being in the world that we know are essential for a healthy human being. And and what it sounds like to me is that you're you're if if you're on a pendulum swing, right, there's usually a dropping of of some practices that are essential on either end of that swing, right? We don't want to swing from right. one side to the other. You want to make sure that you're saying, okay, am I getting joy and beauty every day? It's there. We need to practice perceiving it, right? And again, this system does not want us to see beauty. It does not want us to perceive abundance. It does not want us to acknowledge what is amazing, right? It wants us to feel deficient and have a deficit in our lives so that we can go buy shit, you know? And so we need to be practicing that on a daily basis with this inner father, you know, discipline energy. It's not, it's not forceful, but it's like dance every single day. You, if you dance mm-hmm. every single day, you will not go on the pendulum shift anymore because you mm-hmm. won't let yourself go into this like, oh, I'm just beating myself up and, and you know, dissecting my core self, right? But the, pe- the dance is not utilized to prevent those fires, those, that, that passing through of the, the darkness, as we say in the shamanic tradition, you know, that is... That is not used for that management. It's not pacifying. No, it is enabling that to happen. Like that's the crazy thing yeah. is that we do these practices to get strong so we can do that really hard work, which is the stuff our ancestors couldn't do. You are carrying within you wounds that your ancestors could not process, as am I. 
back 14 mm -hmm. generations. We know on a, on a biological level, you know, that this is carried in our genetic structure. And, mm -hmm. and it is our calling as, as you know, the, the sense that we are the ones we've been waiting for, as people say, you know, the job of that is to go into those fires, you know, and, and really mm -hmm. actually allow them to come up and through and, and pass them out back into spirit so that they can be recycled into the system, right? And so, again, the, the misapplication of the practices, though, is we think the practices are to prevent those. They are not. The practices are to allow those to happen. And that's the great paradox of it. You know, and, and again, you can see that Western medicine framework that says, if I take this medicine, then I'm not going to suffer, right? We are willingly, as warriors, as practitioners, we are willingly moving towards suffering. And that's the difference. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to get rid of it. Does that all make sense? It does. I'm, I'm curious when you talk about the traumas that we carry, how important you think identifying the traumas are? Not at all. Not at all. Because yeah, I think that they the are... What. No. I, I, I think actually that can completely complicate and, and screw up the process, right? Is that mm. you, you can be guaranteed that the trauma sounds like I was not loved enough. I suffered because I did not belong. Um, I suffered because I lost someone or something that I cared deeply about. These are, we are human and we share very similar traumas. We don't need to know that in a past life or that, you know, what our ancestors actually went through because mm -hmm. the, the brain will always co-opt the healing process and it'll write a story about it and it'll get attached to that story. And then you're going to have a far harder time letting go of it because we love stories. You know, they're, they're comfort. They're, they, they, you know, allow us to weave this, this sort of predictable map of the world, right? And if we get too attached mm -hmm. to our story, the, the catharsis of the emotion that is stored within us actually can't happen. I mean, I say to people, you know, I, I work as a quote-unquote talk therapist and yet I don't like talking. I'd much rather if somebody was screaming, you know, I think it'd be far more therapeutically functional if they were just like letting it out, right? Or dancing it out yeah. or, or you know, crying and, and not telling the story. Often the story gets us away from the, the intensity of what's actually coming through us, right? Yes. I think that's why meditation is so hard is because there's nowhere to run. <laughs> nowhere to go. <laughs> totally. Totally. It's, it's, and that's why it's so important, right? Is it steadies us. It prepares us for that experience. And I say to myself, and, you know, I, I've said this to people and they've said, that's not helpful. So y'all thanks a lot, you know, but it's been really helpful for me when I've been going through fires is I'll say, it's just energy. It's not going to kill you, CL. Mm -hmm. And I will affirm that to myself that it's like, this is just energy. You need to feel it. And, and, and I mean, I, I can, you know, there's been several moments in my life of, of really deep processing of old stuff. And it's, it is like a fire coming up from in like the, the core depths of me and like coming out my throat or my eyes. And you have to stay still while it happens yeah. and realize that it, it's just energy. It won't kill us, but it is the source of all of our neurotic patterns because we're trying to push it down all the time so we don't feel it, right? We're trying to mm -hmm. run too fast so that we, it doesn't catch up with us, but it's always right there, you know? And so we, we have to learn to sit still. And that's, you know, what meditation teaches us is go sit still and realize that these, even the, the, the emotion itself is not you. 
You you can experience mm-hmm. it as a, a cloud passing over the sky, right? You are not the cloud. You are the sky. And yes, it is a it, it it's a storm. It's crazy. It's intense, but it will pass, right? And if we can stay still and present, then we can let it leave us finally, right? And it might not even be yours. It might be your great 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 grandmother's, you know, or somebody beyond mm-hmm. her that has been just passed down from generation to generation, and it's time to let it go, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're like, look, we're assuming that we have a meditation practice and we're, you know, doing this stuff when it's not hard, as you say, mm-hmm. so that when it is hard, how do you suggest um, actually allowing yourself to get to the point that you can feel it? I feel like I get mm-hmm. so obsessive and locked in my mind and telling stories about things or just repeating like analytical like this happened because of this this happened do 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 beep 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 computer yeah, yeah. computer like figure <laughs> this out so it's like when when the mind is really racing um and, and I mean I feel like I've tried to do like those like wattos where you're like stop 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 yep. stop but I'm literally yep. just saying that to myself all day so it's like how do I actually how do I actually just like push push the energy down from my mind and all these stories I'm telling to actually even be able to do things like focusing and and get to my body it's like I sometimes feel like I can't even get to the feeling yeah um well if we recognize that constant thinking is a trauma response right constant mm-hmm. narration you know the the brain is a traumatized little being, right? It, it, it is scared shitless mm-hmm. that something's going to happen because something did happen when we were kids and, and often, you know, we were powerless to it. And so it's, it's coming up with all these ideas and stories to try to keep us safe, right? Mm-hmm. So that is a very clear act of, or a, a clear indication, Allison, that on a biological level, what is called our vagus nerve, right? Which is um, the 10th cranial nerve. It's connected to all the organs of the body. That is not well, the the term used is toned. You know, it is not a strong nerve. And the responsibility of this nerve is to tell our body that the stress is over, that we're okay, right? It down-regulates the stress response. Now, I do believe that your your fine boyfriend has some techniques that he's been using to uh, activate and tone. Oh my it, gosh. See, you didn't want to get this answer, this did you? Bl- Wham, Hoff. Because he's trying to get me to breathe all the time. I'm like, I don't want to breathe, David. Leave me alone. <laughs> oh, it is, but this is what we... I mean, again, this is what ancestors knew, you know, indigenous ancestors say on this continent, but all our ancestors knew that in order to do hard things, you have to do hard things. As stupid as that mm-hmm. seems, like do hard things on an emotional level, in order to be able to process the intensity of those emotional experiences, we have to have a toned and, and you know, um, regulated nervous system to be able to tolerate the discomfort of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to do cold exposure or uh, heat exposure, you know, which is going to increase heat shock proteins, which has this protective and, and, you know, healing effect in the body as well, but it has an effect on the vagus nerve so that mm-hmm. we are able to, we're able to discriminate between what is truly life-threatening and what is ego-threatening. And this is really important, Mm -hmm. right, is that our biological body 
and our ego mind utilize the same nervous system. They're both using the same nervous system. So somebody gives you a hairy eyeball and makes you feel uncomfortable, your nervous system is going to react just like you would if something in the woods was chasing you, right? And we need to actually tease those two apart and recognize this is life-threatening, this is not life-threatening, right? And that requires Mm -hmm. our nervous system to be toned and regulated well. And so... The, the truth of it really is, you know, there's there's some things that we can do that are not super hard, um, but for some people, they're uncomfortable. Singing is exceptionally mm-hmm. good for toning the vagus nerve. Uh, mm-hmm. Gargling salt water, um, taking probiotics, making sure that your gut is not inflamed all the time, you know. Um, certain nutrients like magnesium and zinc have an impact on our, our vagus nerve, essential fatty acids, making sure that we are getting adequate melatonin release. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff around making sure our sleep is good and we're sleeping in dark rooms. This will all have an impact mm-hmm. on our vagal nerve functioning. Um, Tell me dancing. again how is the vagal nerve and nervous system are the same thing or? Yeah, yeah it's part of the nervous system. It's, it's such a, it's a crazy thing actually, because, you know, again, in the, the wonderful intelligence that Western medicine awfully, uh, often can uh, express, that for the longest time, doctors would be like, Meh, we don't really know what this nerve does. It's kind of a weird nerve, you know, because most nerves do not connect to every single organ in the body, right? And to the base of the spine, which is where a lot of our like core or the base of the brain, excuse me, um, our core biological info comes in, right? Like body temperature, heart rate, it's all going into your cerebellum at the base of your brain. So this vagus nerve, um, what it does is say you meet a bear in the woods, okay? Your fight or flight system is activated. Your nervous system is turned on. Your your blood is mobilized. Your heart rate goes up. You know, you're ready to do whatever. And after the bear is gone, you want to be able to turn your nervous system back off again, right? You want to be able Mm -hmm. to say you are safe now. You know, everything's okay. Vagal nerve tone is... um, is exhibited by, we know how toned a person's vagal nerve is uh, through looking at how they deal with stress, right? And Mm -hmm. and what this actually is, is their core resilience, their capacity to go through stressful events and then turn their nervous system back off again, right? Whereas a lot of people, Mm -hmm. you know, you get in, uh, I don't know, a a fender bender and and a day later, they're still wound up, still activated. They can't turn their nervous system off. That is a sign that their uh, vagal tone is really low because they're staying in that fight or flight state, even though the the threat is actually passed, right? And what that also indicates is they have repressed and unprocessed trauma that got reactivated by that new circumstance, right? And this is the state that people are often in is they're just being re-traumatized over and over and over again. But again, we get re-traumatized by someone looking at us weird, someone saying nasty things about us, by getting in a fight with yeah. a coworker, stuff that is actually not life-threatening, but we're still responding yeah. with that same highly activated uh, sort of response, right? You can you can get a heart rate variability monitor, which actually looks at the difference between your two heartbeats. Like we have the, dun, 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 the diastolic and the systolic, right? The more different mm-hmm. those are, the more toned your vagal nerve is. And you, these are really inexpensive to buy and they're a cool little tool, you know, to be actually able to say, here's what my heart rate variability and thus my my capacity to deal with stress is at right now. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Yeah, it does. I don't think I need mm-hmm. the machine. I think I have an idea of what my vagal <laughs> nerve toning is. <laughs> that must suspicious. Uh-huh. She's not doing too good. Um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of work. sense. 
Yeah, the breath work, like the Wim Hof breath work. I was talking because, well, for full disclosure, my partner and, and Allison's partner, they are having a little men's group thing, a little men's group. That was just, that's not polite. <laughs> they are having a men's <laughs> gathering to speak about um, the Wim Hof method because they're all doing cold exposure and breath. And it's so cool. Like, and I, yeah. you know, Brent's involvement and engagement with this is like just blown my mind. And he's blown away by it, you know, by just how different you feel and and how much more available to life you are, right? Because if your nervous system is not able to de-escalate, you're not present. You're constantly anticipating a threat or reacting to something that you're perceiving as a threat, which probably isn't actually a threat. Like it's a it's a really yeah. unpleasant place to be. And so the Wim Hof method is really about resetting the nervous system, helping yourself de-escalate, come back to a different baseline, right? And and I mean, it is, it's essential that we do those practices if we're serious, again, about going into these deep, dark places in us. Because otherwise, as soon as they come up and the pain of them is present, we're going to escape. We are going to want to get out of there, right? And then yeah. we're going to have to deal with it later on down the road. So, yeah. David tried to take me through <laughs> some of the breathing, especially mm-hmm. when he first started, because he was like, this feels amazing. Uh, he's so excited. He's like, I, I'm high, all this stuff. And so mm-hmm. he's like, do it, lay down. And he's like, how do you feel? And I'm like, I'm furious. <laughs> this does not feel good. I'm so angry. <laughs> I'm just, I am truly like, it's the tough But that's, that's that part of you protecting a, a hurt place, right? Your protector yeah. got activated because... This is also, it's it's the truth of the healing journey is that we don't want to go to those sore spots, right? They were not taken mm-hmm. care of when they first happened. And that's a beautiful part of you. She is your protector, right? But you need to have some conversations with her and ask her, you know, like, what, what are we protecting from and what are we closing in here? And, and really start dialoguing with that part because... Is she, you can't just bully her out of the way, right? She is a wonderful mm-hmm. and beautiful and, and necessary part of you as a, as a complex being, right? But mm-hmm. she, her role as protector was, was once necessary and now it's become prison, right? She's locking in the yeah. wounds. And, and so you have to learn to relate to her a, a little bit differently, right? Yeah, it's it's really the letting go, I feel like, is the most challenging where it's like, yeah. I actually feel very capable of facing hardship in the moment. Um, and I really do solidly know that about myself, that I'm like, I can handle hard stuff in the moment. And my the, the part that is tricky is, as you're saying, like when to know I'm no longer being chased by the bear. Like mm-hmm. I, it's the letting go. Why can't I let things heal? It's like I've dealt yeah. with the issue, but I cannot let it heal. And that's the part of her I understand the least. That it's like, okay, yeah. thank you. You did a great job, but now also chill. <laughs> totally, totally. And that, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, he, they, and, and most teachers have different approaches and and suggestions for being able to to notice when we're still in that escalated state and not to compound injury by like trying to shame ourselves or get ourselves out of it right but but he says you know the first step is is mindfulness of just noticing like whoa okay i'm in an escalated state that again you know to bring it back to self awareness else and most of the time people don't realize that they're in an escalated state they don't realize that they're moving fast and and doing crazy things and not you know like aware of people around them because 
they've yeah. got their trauma program activated and and it doesn't want to s- notice what's actually going on right so if we can notice as they say in buddhism then we are well trained you know we can actually go mm-hmm. oh okay i'm i'm in an activated state right and then we can engage with letting it go but i think we we sometimes want to skip to the come on like this is uncomfortable i don't know what it is but i'm uncomfortable there's where focusing practice can come in of going what is the energy of being activated can i sit with this can i be okay with it can i parent it right and and let it be here and then you know we may be able to breathe it out or you know, I, I read a lot of the Stoics for a long time, and they have some beautiful techniques of of like actually seeing your your emotional experiences as as things that you put down. You know, you say, "Okay, here I'm going to put this down," or maybe I write about it and let it go for a bit, or whatever. There's a bazillion different techniques to deal with, but I think that we can't skip that first step of going, "What is this energy?" Because that's what it wants, yeah. right? It wants you to notice what it feels like because you didn't get mm-hmm. to do that before, right? If that makes sense. Yeah. It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of went down a different path today, didn't we? Oh, we did. Should we pull a card? I'm like, <laughs> sure. I, should we get sure. in there? Totally. one minutes minus do. our weather talk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> See what card comes out. A little blip blip. <laughs> oh, here we go. Surprise, surprise. I get um, mm-hmm. this card often and I, I can never remember what it means. So really? clearly something's not going to Yeah. Chickadee and ginkgo. Mm-hmm. Um, chickadee and ginkgo. It's wonderful. I actually, I was sitting in my office um, a couple days ago and we, my son and I made some suet balls for the birds and put them out and so all the chickadees have come back and they're filling our yard but I was sitting in my office and this little chickadee came up and and like was flying outside the window and like pecking at my window and was like tick, 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 and then went to the next window and like sat on the windowsill and was like trying to get in my I love chickadees they're, they're just so mm. fantastic do you have the book with you I do why don't you read the um, the definition of it and then we can explore the question let us see Engage your mind. Be curious mm-hmm. and open in your responses to experiences in life. Hmm, what a quinkadink. <laughs> Our educational systems and experiences don't often serve to enhance or even maintain the natural curiosity and childlike wonder we are born with in this world. And often mm-hmm. as adults, we have forgotten the awe that defined and continues to define our true nature. Our minds tend to get stuck and rigid where they were once fluid and flexible. Chickadee is a reminder to reclaim this energy and perspective, the energy of creativity, wonderment, and new perspectives, for her energy is vivid and bright, always curious and attentive to the situation at hand. Being curious and open to change takes a lot of work when we've been trained out of it. However, and the energy of Kinko assists this journey. A powerful, tenacious, and deeply wise being Ginkgo teaches our brain how to create and maintain new neurological structures as well as anchoring us in our true selves so that we might consciously explore those beliefs and perspectives that we have been carrying and perhaps fighting for that might not actually be true for us after all. And the question is, what new response will free me in this moment? What part of my ego am I defending? (laughs) Man, these cards are so good. (laughs) 
Yeah. It, it sort of speaks yeah. for itself, eh? That might be the end I of the know. episode. I know. I'm just going right <laughs> the beginning of the episode. Mike right dropped it. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what can we say? <laughs> okay, chickadee. But, yeah, and you know, I've... I've uh, I, I hope that people, we're recording this actually before the Stephen Buhner episode has been released, but he has a, as I mentioned in that episode, this 120-page COVID um, protocol that he's created. It's just amazing. But he references ginkgo a lot um, mm-hmm. as some of the after effects that people are noting from COVID are some neurological stuff, um, some mm. difficulty thinking, difficulty processing memory and thoughts and foggy brain and stuff. So. I've been thinking a lot about ginkgo and I suppose thinking a lot about thinking, you know, in the last while. And I mean, as per this episode, right, of looking at how, uh, I mean, I I think this is, you know, a fairly common experience on the spiritual healing journey that we have to look at the stories, right? And look at how are we using our mind and how has our mind become a prison for us as it always is in adulthood, right? We used it to create a map of meaning and safety in childhood and that was necessary but it is not necessary to to exist in that same relationship to it as an adult and in fact it's it's exceptionally detrimental to us right how do we go back into uh, curiosity and this this spaciousness of saying okay what is actually here right what response mm-hmm. am i using to the stimulus of this moment and and is this the response that i want to be using that requires some vagal nerve tone, you know, to even catch ourselves in the response. It requires a willingness to to stop and and pause and go, what what is really here, right? But I mean, I, I do think the the inquisitive and 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 attentive energy of chickadee could be called upon and and we can utilize that to to stay awake, you know, and, and to not sleepwalk through our experiences, which I think we're doing a lot of the time, right? We just we're on autopilot, right? Yeah. and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the northern Sukhwapmik people. All music, editing and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. And may we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is. Mm-hmm.